What's going on? This is the Saturday on Sub podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. No Will today. He is in Vegas with work. So going to have Matt Hayes join me in a little bit here. We're going to argue about some playoff rankings. Uh, I'm sure Tennessee will come up. Lot to get to with Matt after week nine. I, I want to run through some week nine thoughts before uh, we do that because I have so many thoughts about what we saw between cocktail party, between Tennessee doing what is suddenly just the Tennessee thing, and that is blow out decent teams. Um, but yes, lots to get to. So let's start with the cocktail party. Florida loses to Georgia in a game that I didn't really think that the scoreboard told the entire story. I don't usually say this, but I think both teams kind of needed this. I talked about what both fan bases would have been happy with in this game in the preview pod. And I think in some ways that happened, despite the fact that, again, you look up, you're like, all right, Georgia won this game by 22 points, kind of expected. Shout out to Florida for covering plus 22 and a half. Kirby was definitely trying to cover this spread. You can't convince me otherwise. By the way, both Florida and my lock of the week, Michigan State, lost by 22 and covered by half a point in rivalry games. Huge. On the Florida side, if I told a Gator fan before this, hey, Florida is going to be in a one-score game late in the third quarter. They would have said, seriously? (laughs) That's awesome. We'll take that all day. They would have been even more pumped if they were one of the Florida fans who bolted when it was 28-3. to Or maybe they would have been pissed and prayed for a blowout loss, which is what the scoreboard said it was. On a day in which Anthony Richardson looked like he got banged up on basically the first play, I thought the hit was legal. It was kind of an awkward landing. He was going out of bounds. You got to remember, you can't let Anthony Richardson turn upfield. It was not a late hit. Um, I I thought seeing him come back the way that he did and settle in was a major positive because we saw with this team last year, once the wheels came off, it was over. And this year, Florida showed some fight. Amari Bernie just forces every big turnover for Florida. That's that's what he does. I thought ETN looked excellent. Uh, Richardson threw that that just seed to capitalize on Malachi Starks, a true freshman, kind of cheating on that route. He got bit for a long touchdown from Henderson. And, you know, Florida was never going to win this game, but I, I think it actually got meaningful snaps late. And considering the spread, which again, I know coaches don't pay attention to, we're not talking about moral victories here, but think about this. If I'm a Florida fan, I like the fact that against Utah, against Tennessee, and against Georgia, Florida showed fight. Three toughest games of the year. Three toughest games of the year. They play to their competition maybe as much as any team in the SEC. And sometimes that's good. and Sometimes that's not good. Having said that, Florida may or may not have just woken the beast. That felt like a get right game for Georgia. Because remember, you can't really get right against Vandy. <clears throat> That's not the way that works. And even with you know the turnovers, Georgia has three turnovers in this game. That's kind of the crazy thing. Georgia turns the ball over three times. Florida doesn't turn it over once. Um, despite that, I-, I think Stetson in the passing game showed what Georgia fans were hoping for without A.D. Mitchell, who just cannot seem to get on the field this year, and it's really frustrating. But Brock Bowers, still unconfirmed human being, the tip pass, the whatever that was, whatever we want to call that. I don't know if there's a name for it yet. Um, I need to maybe brainstorm that that play, an, a proper name to do that play justice. But he keeps his body moving while turning around to make that play that was basically thrown at his back. That was so much harder than it looked. It really was. Like it, you kind of looked at, look at that in real time. And you're like, oh, that was really lucky. And for St- from Stetson's perspective, yes, it was absolutely lucky because it was an underthrown ball, and it looked like you know th- there was a, a nice play to be made by the defensive back. But it wasn't luck from Bauer's perspective because luck doesn't keep his head from bobbing. And it doesn't keep his feet from getting tangled up. Or at the very least, luck doesn't keep his momentum from taking him out of bounds. Just an incredible play by um, somebody who may or may not be a human being. Again, we still don't really know. The fourth and seven play later, too, where Bennett just kind of dropped it in a bucket to Bowers. And Bowers, who, you know what? Like, he's been around the block. He's the Brock Bowers at this stage of his career already, which I realize, what are we like? 23 games into his career he is kind of the guy who when when the number three hitter number four hitter in your lineup hits a home run he puts his head down he runs around the bases 
he's done it before. Brock Bowers made plenty of big time catches already. There's not really a whole lot that's going to really get him fired up. He's not bat flipping. All right. If he hits one just over, you know, just over the wall, 375. But when he converts that fourth and seven and he gets up and he is fired up. I mean, even Kirby after that play was more fired up than usual because it was a free play and Florida had jumped off sides. And that was kind of the dagger, in my opinion. But Kirby just seemed like he was really soaking this one in. You see him on the sidelines. I mean, he had the <laughs> boom, mother trucker <laughs> that CBS caught. I mean, we're going to need Kirby mic'd up real soon here. I would love to be able to see that. Maybe just put it on like a pay-per-view network. I would absolutely watch that. We got all these simulcasts going. Uh, a Kirby network would be great. I think recruits would love that. But I think, you know, even you see him afterwards and, you know, looking at some of the USA Today pictures, and I always love kind of going through the galleries to to see what the vibe was of a game. And Kirby's celebrating with players that are with the fans afterwards, and he's posing for pictures. He's he's really soaking this in. He doesn't care that he was a 22 and a half point favorite and that nobody in their right mind would have picked Florida to win this game. He doesn't care about that. To me, though, I, I think that he had maybe, and he maybe he's not going to admit this, but there was a little bit of fear that crept into his mind when after 28 to three, that lead is all of a sudden, boom, Florida's back in at one score game. And your team looks like it's kind of reeling after, uh, you know what, a, a somewhat lackluster post South Carolina stretch, again, with the exception of Andy. I think maybe there was this fear with Kirby that his team would play a little bit tight when it got close. And that did not happen. And if anything, it felt like it kind of woke him up and they kind of needed that kick in the pants. When Florida made it a one score game, Georgia went six plays, 78 yards, and then boom, another touchdown drive. And then their last drive was basically half of the fourth quarter. That is how championship teams respond. That is how Ohio State responded against Penn State. That's even how Alabama responded against Tennessee when it fell behind early, albeit with a different final result. And Tennessee responds, of course, against Alabama with the after the Dallas Turner uh, scoop and score and the way that that played out. This is what you look for. These are your defining moments. It doesn't necessarily always come against a top ten, top five team or something like that. We talked about it last year with Alabama, the response in the Iron Bowl. You know, who cares about what the spread is at that point? You need a game-winning drive when you're backed up against your own goal line. These are the things that you have to do. And Georgia, in that moment, to take what was probably a really tense feeling for the, the fans in Jacksonville and all of a sudden just make it evaporate. To me, I don't think you can take that for granted. And it's not to say that Georgia should assume that it has this switch that it can automatically flip. But man, it felt like it. I think my takeaway from this watching Georgia it isn't as perfect as the Oregon game made it seem. Okay. I, I think that assuming that they're going to play this perfect game from start to finish is a bit unrealistic because it is for most teams. And, and you see kind of the numbers that, 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 that came out afterwards about Georgia still has the same average scoring margin um, in terms of where they were at last year. I think it's plus 31 per game compared to last year. And, you know, Kirby, since the start of last year, has won 19 of those 22 games by at least three scores. I mean, it's incredible to think about some of this stuff. It really is. But Georgia is darn good at its peak. I'm not breaking news by saying that, but you saw that on Saturday um, in, in those spots. And by the way, Georgia being at its peak includes a healthy Jalen Carter, who in in small doses looked really good after, of course, he got injured in the season opener, had kind of played through it, and then got seriously injured on the what I thought was a dirty hit against Mizzou. Um I, I still think that this Georgia team is showing us that it is one of three and maybe four. Now we probably need to include Tennessee in that category as well. Maybe I need to open up my parameters that they are one of those teams that can win a national championship. And contrary to Bo Nix's belief, I still would pick Georgia to pummel Oregon, no matter where that game was played. You can play that game in Eugene. You can play that game in Bo Nix's backyard. I don't care. I'm taking Georgia to win the football game. Simple as that. This Georgia team now has a really telling stretch. Uh, it is more daunting than any regular season stretch that they have had so far. And again, Kirby has handled everything in stride in the regular season and has not lost a regular season game since the cocktail party two years ago, which is just bananas to think about. It really, really is. But yes, monumental showdown coming up. Of course, first top five matchup at Sanford Stadium since 1983. College game day is going to be in the house. Tennessee, Georgia. Man, this is just... 
this is exactly what I thought was going to happen when I, when I, of course, said that Tennessee was going to beat Georgia in the offseason. No, I'm just kidding. I did not think they would be top five teams at the time. Now it feels like a little bit less of an upset. But of course, I think there's still going to be a lot of a lot of people that are watching the way that this played out, thinking, "Oh, Georgia's got its swagger back." Georgia should be able to beat a team like Tennessee, and maybe they will. Maybe they absolutely will. But this one is going to be absolutely awesome. Okay, speaking of Tennessee, they hosted Kentucky, and um, they were not very nice. Hand up on this. Dead wrong. Your boy was dead, dead wrong. I was dead wrong for thinking that Kentucky could go into Rocky Top and have an Alabama-like showing offensively. Did not happen. I, I'm pretty sure that Young and Slaughter will deplete me if I step outside of this room. That's how physical those two dudes were in that game. Key play of the game, of course. And again, it's an extremely lopsided game. It's a 38-point game. I realize that. But when it was 20-6, to Kentucky looked like it was knocking on the door middle of the second quarter after what I thought was a pretty entertaining start. Slaughter delivers this just bone-crushing hit on Dane Key, and the ball pops loose. Tennessee picks it off, nearly turns it into a pick six. Kind of all she wrote after that. Awful, awful game for Will Levis. And I'm not going to do the thing where I try and calculate how many millions of dollars he lost because we don't actually know those numbers, Darren Ravel. We just don't. That's not the way that this actually works. Um, But it was a bad game from Will Levis. It really was. And it was a bad game from Rich Gangarello as well. I'm not sure why Tennessee's secondary wasn't tested more on the back end and why they didn't take some of those downfield chances. I I know there was a drop earlier. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was Dane Key who had the drop on the left side where you're just like, Will Levis couldn't do anything more than that. And I thought that there were some one-on-one opportunities that they kind of left on the table where you should have tried to at least stretch the field at certain points in that game. And instead... You're worried about Will Levis just getting drilled by that offensive because that offensive line wasn't very good. And it just seemed like everything was underneath. And, you know, that, that just played into Tennessee's hands. It felt like Levis started forcing throws. Uh, he he was the worst version of himself after that first interception, which, again, I don't really know how much of that is on him. It seemed like that was one of those things that Slaughter had looked at in the film room and diagnosed. And that's why he was able to jump the route. And he even had help behind him as well because of the way that Tennessee was playing its coverage. But Kentucky failed in all three phases. I mean, it's as simple as that. You can't put this 100% on Will Levis, though obviously that's going to be the headline. The offense was just terrible. It was. Defense decided not to guard Jalen Hyatt. Bad strategy. Did not work out for Kentucky. Special teams had an extra point blocked. Punning game, terrible. Uh, This was tied for the second most lopsided Kentucky lost at the entire playoff era. Think about that. Only time that Mark Stoops' team got beat worse than that was during the COVID year, really depleted roster, got rolled at Alabama, an Alabama team that rolled everybody with the exception of Florida and the SEC championship. So um, maybe Tennessee is on its way to being like 2020 Alabama. Uh, I don't necessarily think that we can say that just yet. If you're not impressed, though, with Tennessee yet, you're just a hater. (laughs) That's what it comes down to. You have hate in your heart for Tennessee because anybody – Anybody watching this team should think that they're scary. And I'm not just saying that because it's Halloween, but they are. They are terrifying. I I think defensively when they play like that with that edge, it it is such a game changer. And that that to me, yes, a lot of people are going to start to make the comparisons that it's 2019 LSU. And I'm not saying that they're 2019 LSU. I'm not saying they're about to win a national title, but they just – They punch Kentucky in the mouth, and Tim Banks continues to prove me wrong. I mean, they demolished Kentucky's big blue gate. They really did. I I mean, I I don't really know that you could say that they demolished it. I mean, I've seen in the Orlando area a lot of these fences that have dealt with the hurricane after effects, and I don't really know that it's fair to say that they left them in that kind of shape. It was more just like, oh, yeah, the the big blue gate just opens up, and Tennessee just waltzes right through there, and – it looked as easy as that sometimes. Um, if this defense for Tennessee really is the Achilles heel, I, I think we need to add more context to this because they've been more efficient than I've given them credit for. I'm admitting that. 100% wrong. Coming into Saturday, we knew about the pass defense. They had actually only allowed 7.2 yards per attempt. And Saturday was really efficient against Will Levis. They are actually now going to be in the upper half of college football teams in terms of yards per attempt allowed. 
That's why if you combine it with how good they have been against the run, this isn't some 2020 Ole Miss thing, right? It's not. I mean, they've only allowed 28 points in two games so far this year. All right. It's not like every single one of their games are 45, 42, but of course the Bama game kind of skews our perception a little bit and, you know, seeing them against Florida, those are their two college game day games. So we kind of think, all right, you know, this is the way that this played out, but you know, I, I think this Tennessee defense needs to start getting some more credit. I'm going to do what I can to start giving them some more credit because it's very easy to just look at, oh, well, number 130 pass defense. It's also the byproduct of Tennessee having more passes attempted against that defense than anyone in America. <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason why you have to throw to try and beat Tennessee. And of course, that's the way that you try and keep up with this high-powered offense, which is just ridiculously good. So when you watch the playoff show and you hear all these dudes talk about Tennessee defense being such a liability and ah, they're not a complete team. Also remember that they kicked the crap out of Kentucky and LSU. And those two teams that hit 28 points were Florida and Alabama. All right. Big time rivalry games in which I think you would still come away more impressed with them than not impressed. Tennessee is sitting in such good shape now with that resume. They really are because we can't sit here and say, oh, they have five top 25 wins. I realize there are Tennessee fans. If that's part of your narrative, you want to use that as your that like that's your metric that you're going to go with because it favors your team the most, which everybody does. And I'm not just saying Tennessee fans do this, but We can't just say that because not all those teams are ranked anymore. We can, however, say that Tennessee has the best win of anybody in the country and has the three wins against power five teams who have winning records, two of whom are in the top 15, right? I mean, that's significant. Going into LSU and blowing the doors off of them the way that they did, that win has to hold up. That win is, I think that win is better than Ohio State going into Penn State. I do. I really do. I think Tennessee has two wins better than Ohio State's best one. Um like I said, if you're still waiting on something, I I don't know what you're waiting for on Tennessee. I don't. I really don't. And by the way, Hendon Hooker, new favorite for the Heisman on DraftKings. So that's happening. Heisman narrative in full effect. Got a month to go. But boy, it's looking good. It's looking real good. Okay, Ole Miss at Texas A&M. I said going into this one that I thought Lane was overusing the fist pump. I did. We kind of saw the onslaught of the lane fist pumps. We, we had seen a little bit little bit more of those, maybe before LSU, not a whole lot to fist pump about after the first quarter of that one. Um, but the way this played out, Lane, lane was feeling it. <laughs> not a surprise to see the, the you-know-what eating grin on his face afterwards when he says to Cole, uh, 390 rushing yards against a bunch of five stars. Pretty good. And then when Cole asked him if he had a Halloween costume, he said that maybe Jimbo would have a Joker costume for him. Huh. (laughs) I want to live in the world in which Halloween costumes are strictly for trolling in the SEC. That's that's what we need. All right. Each and every year. Dan Mullen kind of made it happen with the Darth Vader thing. Let's let's get everybody a trolling Halloween costume. It doesn't just you don't bring it out unless you win. All right. It's only. You can't bring that out if you lose. We agree. Maybe if you start a halftime brawl, you can't bring it out then either. <laughs> but I think that we need to have this be become a regular thing. If Lane had just shown up full Joker costume, which that's difficult with all the makeup that goes into that. It's what does Dwight say in the office? Like, oh, I was up for four hours doing this. Um, it takes a long time to be able to get that going. But if somebody could have just had that ready to go post game for him, what an all time troll that would have been. <laughs> uh, think about that. Why that meant so much to Lane. Not only did Lane feel like, as he said, he was outbid for players. Again, his words. He also watched DJ Durkin get more money to bolt for AM. Kiffin competing against the coordinator who left him for another team in the division. That's pretty rare. That doesn't happen a whole lot. And I actually think Lane and, and Charlie Weiss Jr. sort of threw out their own playbook. They made the better in-game adjustments. Clearly, if you listen to Tom and Jordan on the broadcast, they talked about how Lane said that they didn't want to give Judkins a ton of carries and that his workload had kind of been too much so far. This is a kid who used to get the ball a ton in high school. Like his workload was insane as a high school player. So I think with Zach Evans healthy, 
coming off of the game against LSU in which he was kind of the late scratch. I, I think that they were going to hope to dial it back for Judkins going into the bye week, kind of, you know, maybe give him like 12 carries or something like that. That didn't happen. <laughs> that did not happen at all. Judkins had 34 carries for 205 yards. And I think he broke roughly 12 tackles on that 61-yard run that he had to kind of put the game out of reach. Everybody talks about the scheming, which it is second to none. But when you have a guy that can do that, man, it is just different. And Evans looked healthy again. That's kind of the crazy thing. But he only got eight carries because... If you have a guy that's rolling the way that Judkins is, why wouldn't you keep feeding him the rock? He was excellent. AM was pretty depleted defensively. No Antonio Johnson. And then both of their five-star true freshman defensive line were banged up. I think Turner came back in. As much as you would love to be able to say, hey, like, all right, AM has to be able to make some tackles. You can't have three and 190 rushing yards allowed against a bunch of five stars. You also can't expect to beat a top 15 team when your offense goes 40 minutes without a point. And that's what happened. And I'm not even saying that to knock Connor Wigman in his first career start. Again, he spells his name wrong, but I thought he was actually pretty impressive for the most part. They ran some up-tempo early, and then for whatever reason, they got away from it. I think it's just because they don't have people that can literally call in those plays. It was really interesting watching Kentucky, Tennessee, and they did, I think they left the camera, and one of the things that you can do when a game gets lopsided, they left the camera on Alex Golish for like three plays. And then they talked about how quickly he gets them in and how how much his brain works. And maybe they did like a split screen or something like that so you could see it processing in real time. And they talk about how not everyone can do that. And there are so many things that you have to be able to process in that moment of, oh, this guy's really tired. Do you run the play away from him? Do you leave him on there so that you don't give a, the defense a chance to be able to make their substitutions? And there's just so much in, that goes into it. And I just don't think AM feels comfortable doing it for 60 minutes. That's kind of what it comes down to. And that's unfortunate because it looked like it would have really helped them against Ole Miss. And I realized that Ole Miss is playing tempo as well. So you want to be able to kind of you know give your defense a little bit of a break. But the Offense just looked better when they were in rhythm, and you kind of saw that late when they picked it up again. Um, I, I thought that they capitalized in the red zone. They they put some they put faith in, in Wigman to make some plays going for it on fourth and one. I mean, I love that he kind of threw a couple of those balls up for grabs. Evan Stewart went, made a ridiculous play in this one, man. For a guy who's sub six feet, I love watching that guy get some of those one on one balls. He is fun to watch, you know. And, after the SEC loses a guy like George Pickens, and I realize that Evan Stewart is his physical makeup is different, but he is going to make some very George Pickens like like catches throughout his career as long as he stays at AM. Um, but I, I was really impressed with with what he was able to do. But again, he's goes like two quarters w- without I think so much as a target in this one. And, and that just can't necessarily happen. And, you know, the good news for AM is that, okay, if you want something to believe in, your young guys are getting experience. You've got so much youth on that offensive line. Wigman is the starter moving forward. Jimbo said that afterwards. I thought he should have did that. I thought he should have done that going into the South Carolina game coming off the bye week. But nonetheless, that's going to be the move. Three different starting quarterbacks for him this year. Wigman maybe is going to end up being the best one of them. But now reality sets in. AM's three and five. Worst losing streak since 2005. We're going to assume that UMass is a win. They're going to beat Don Brown. All right. Even AM is going to be able to have some explosive passing plays against Don Brown's defense. I feel good about that. But you got to win two of three against Florida at home next week at Auburn and home against LSU. That's, again, with an extremely young, banged-up offensive line, true freshman quarterback, who you think is going to have some peaks and valleys. Now there's now now these, these defensive coordinators are going to be able to see what's he comfortable with, what's he not comfortable with. And it's not necessarily a guarantee that he's going to come out there and throw 300 yards and four touchdown passes every single week because these guys are good at making adjustments. That's the way that this works. Oh, one more thing. AM scored more than 24 points against an FBS team for the first time since October 23rd, 2021. The drought is over. They avoided tying, they showed the graphic. They avoided tying Rutgers in Colorado for that, which would have been just horrendous. Baby steps for the Aggies on a day in which um, Pete Thamel reported that Jimbo won't be fired because $86 million. And I don't want to assume that he definitely had my column opened as he's reading off. 
the the number about you got to wait until after 2026 to pay Jimbo less than $50 million. I don't want to assume that he just had that open when he looked down, when Pete Thamel looked down uh, at his phone in the middle of that report, but um, felt like it a little bit. So whatever. Uh, yeah. And I'm not paying $86 million. Just not going to happen. Arkansas, Auburn. I'm going to get to Arkansas in a moment here. I promise I will, because I'd be remiss if I didn't give the Hogs some love for once again, working through that that mid-season lull and showing up with two 40-point games in true road venues. But when Brian Harson is fired, and it's it's when, it's not if, there are going to be people who jump to conclusions and say, Auburn is just so crazy and they don't give anyone any time. That is just their way of telling you that they didn't watch these moments. They didn't watch this team play football. They didn't. Those people will not mention the fact that Auburn um, went from being a top 10 team to then going one in nine in its next 10 games against power five competition. You know what the one win was. All right. I don't have to repeat that. Those people haven't watched one of the most intimidating atmospheres in the sport be totally neutralized. Did not matter 1%. You cannot tell me that it was just because it was a, an 11 o'clock local time game. It's not just because of Robbie Ashford, not just because of one defensive player. And maybe even Harson isn't 100% responsible for everything that has put him in this spot. But man, coming off the bye, that team had zero chance in the second half. Zero. Arkansas had 153 rushing yards in the third quarter. 153 rushing yards in the third quarter of a football game. 286 total. KJ had all day to throw. And when he didn't, he would see the pocket collapse and then he would just pretty much take souls when he would meet some poor sap in one-on-one. I mean, it was, it was incredible to watch the way that he kind of diagnosed that he's become much more comfortable with that. It's very, very clear. I'm old enough to remember when quarterbacks would turtle playing at Jordan Hare. I am. It doesn't feel like that long ago. Ryan Harson is still of the impression that if his team would simply tackle better, it would be an elite defense instead of being in jeopardy of being the worst run defense in program history. Very bizarre post-game interaction that he had with Tom Green of AL.com that Adam Cole tweeted about. If you haven't seen this, basically what happened was Tom asked Harson a question. Um, he said, you know, the defense has allowed 40 points in four of the last six games, and that was a strength in recent years. And then Harson cuts him off and goes, you mean compared to the teams we didn't coach? And then Tom responds by saying, even last year you guys were. And then Harson cuts him off again. And he goes into a long answer that starts with the words, yeah, well, I think it's, you know, like we talked about here, I think it comes down to tackling. I'd read you the entire answer, but I'll just sum it up by saying that at no point did he say, we have to put our guys in better position to make plays, or I'm going to make sure that we put more talent on that football field because what we have isn't getting it done. And that falls on me, the head coach. When you're getting trucked like this team is, you can say that. You really can. And I mean, let's be honest. Harson can say anything at this point, and it's not going to make a difference because he's getting fired. That's happening. There's not going to be a, a win, a, a less mile, save his job type win. That's gone. That ship has sailed. We found out on Saturday during the game that John Cohen is reportedly leaving Mississippi State to take the Auburn AD job. Um, as of this recording, I don't think that's officially finalized, but that was what was reported. One would assume that maybe he's actually going to get the chance to hire a football coach. Um, <laughs> it's clear that Harson's gone. It, it is. And I won't be one of those people defending him because all you got to do is look across that opposite sideline and see, yes, you can fire a coach after year two when you can tell that it is not working and you can come out better for it. Speaking of Arkansas, after the three-game losing streak, you're banged up. Top 10 ranking is gone. You've got two games on the road. That is how you respond. That right there. Defensively, Barry Odom said that they were as healthy as they've been since week one. Eh, you're still without Jalen Catalan, so how healthy are you really? Outside of that long tank run for six, wherein he just kind of throws his arms out and is like, oh, my God, open space. This is amazing. I don't blame him for doing that. I would have done that at the 20 if I was tank. Um I thought Arkansas looked mostly good defensively. Uh, more importantly, though, KJ and Rocket, they were healthy. They were looking like the best versions of themselves, which that was always going to be enough against this bad Auburn run defense. Get this. 
I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm overreacting, but context is needed. All right. Rocket hit a thousand yards rushing on that 76 yard run. Not for the day. <laughs> it felt like it for the season, for the season. Shout out to Fopolini. Uh, they shared on the broadcast that he actually got there faster than Darren McFadden, which is wild to think about. Rocket Sanders 13 game pace, which we're now assuming that Arkansas is going to get to a bowl game. They're going to get that 13th game as long as he's healthy. His 13 game pace is 1,700 rushing yards. That would put him in between McFadden's 2006 and 2007 seasons. That's incredible. Dude has been awesome. He has been great. And I love the fact that we're going to get at least another year of Rocket Sanders in that offense. And that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. But to me, KJ was the difference maker in this. When he is confident and letting plays develop, throwing over the middle, like we talked about after the BYU game, he is excellent. He is so good. His sense of awareness has improved. That that is the biggest difference between KJ when he would lock in on Traylon Burks versus KJ this year who can kind of work through his progressions. If it's Hazelwood and sometimes it's Landers and he just feels comfortable and he's not jumpy. When Auburn would get off the edge, he would always step up in the pocket. And when Auburn would rush three and not, he'd be like, all right, I'll pick you apart. This is fine. We can do this all day. Arkansas, with those two guys healthy and looking like that, they have a chance to be able to navigate this tricky finish to the season. They are home against a 7-1 Liberty squad, Hugh Freeze, who lost a one-point game to Wake Forest, and that's it. They are home against a surging LSU squad. They're home against an 8-1 Ole Miss squad, and then they're at Mizzou, who just showed why it has one of the SEC's better defenses, and... That's not a gimme either. So if you told me Arkansas is going to be six and six and going to the Birmingham Bowl, I wouldn't be stunned. If you told me that Arkansas is going to be nine and three and going to the Citrus Bowl, I wouldn't be stunned either. <laughs> wide, wide range of outcomes. It feels like anywhere from one and three to four and oh, I, I don't know. But the good news is they got healthy on the defensive side of the ball. And that one, two punch is dynamic and going to be not fun to be playing in November. I can guarantee that. Mizzou. Wow. Mizzou goes into South Carolina, and don't you know it? Toby Keith game. How do you like me now? Drink at it. He finally gets one on the road, thanks to Blake Baker, and that lights out Mizzou defense. Mizzou has two non-Vandy road wins under drink, both at South Carolina. First time winning on the road against an AP Top 25 team since that weird 2018 game at Florida, which was, I believe, post-cocktail party, and Drew Locke just went off in that game. Just like, oh, didn't see that coming at all. Um, Mizzou just owned South Carolina. Simple as that. Four straight. I want to give the Tigers some love because what I say about South Carolina might sound like I'm taking credit away, but I promise I'm not. Mizzou is dominant up front. I mean, they totally took over in the trenches in this game. Isaiah McGuire, all bang the drum team member, is having an awesome year. He was a huge reason why Mizzou had 11 tackles for loss in this one. Martez Manuel sacks Radler and then goes to the back, pulls out his towel, and then he does the sandstorm wave. Kind of summed up the day. South Carolina fans know it. They overwhelmed that South Carolina offensive line, which has been bad this year. It has not been at the level that we hoped with all the experience that they had back up front. They held South Carolina to 203 yards of offense, 3.8 yards per play. That's not going to get it done. You're going to have all the Beamer ball in the world. That ain't getting it done. Five SEC games, Georgia's offense had the best offensive day against Mizzou with 26 points. Big, big win for Mizzou and the bowl chances. Now you basically have to beat either Kentucky or Arkansas. That's kind of what it's going to take. Got to win one of those two games, which I would kind of argue those are both still potential Toby Keith games for drink. I think those are both still on the table for him. Um, so I think even if Mizzou misses a bowl, though, I think drink's job is safe. He'll, he'll end up giving up play calling duties. If you've kind of read the tea leaves, listen to the way that he's talked about that. I think that is coming. I think even he knows that's coming. But still, I, I was I was impressed by that. While I'm on the subject of, of play callers, offensive play callers specifically, Marcus Satterfield, uh, it's time to update the resume. It is. He might need a job soon. As it turns out, when South Carolina doesn't have the benefit of special teams touchdown or just a healthy Marshawn Lloyd, 
pretty rough. It's pretty rough. Somehow, no targets for Jaheim Bell. Best playmaker on that offense outside of Lloyd and did not get targeted. His mom took to social media to vent her frustration. I'm right there with her. I don't get how it happens. No idea. They'll line him up in the backfield, but they won't want to drag route two yards past the line of scrimmage, get him a pop pass, which I realized that's not something you typically do for a tight end. But if he can get backfield carries, I suppose he can get a pop pass, whatever. This just comes down to a confusing offensive identity that nobody really understands. And when you not only have a bad offensive line, but you also have a bad, uh, I shouldn't say bad. Let me take that back. When you also have a quarterback who isn't developing, that's frustrating. I am surprised that they have not experimented more with the design runs for Spencer Rattler. I thought he gained this weight. We talked about gaining 12 pounds of muscle coming into the year. I, I thought that he did that to be able to make that part of his game. He had the nice scramble on the touchdown. We've kind of seen it in, in spurts here, two-point conversion earlier in the year where the legs looked really good. But, man, that was basically it. He had the fumble. Like, you have Luke Doty as a backup. So even if Rattler gets hurt, what is what does that really change things? And instead, you know, he's so unfamiliar with running in space that he doesn't even do the little things. Like when the fumble happens, you're like, you got to protect the football. You're, you're in the middle of the field. You're about to get the head on, on the football, and you're protecting it with one hand like that, driving for a first down. I mean, that ball came out easily, and that's in, deep in your own territory. You just can't have that happen. It was troubling. It was really troubling for the South Carolina offense. This is the ultimate um, why we can't have nice things game for South Carolina. They get into the AP Top 25 for the first time since 2018. I was getting ready to say coming into this one, oh, South Carolina, maybe going to win a game as an AP top 25 team for the first time since 2014, which was against Vandy back when Derek Mason was in his first month on the job. Did not happen. Beamer talked about last year how frustrated he was losing at Mizzou because of how poorly his team handled success. Longest winning streak in nine years, and then you lose at home to Mizzou. That's why you're in this place. That that's why you're you're kept at an arm's length. That's why you're not at the forefront of the national conversation just yet. South Carolina still has a way to go. Potential turn the corner type game that would have been to be able to come out and just blow the doors off Mizzou, and instead they were just outplayed, outplayed in every possible way. Before we kick it to Matt Hayes, um, Texas Pete, y'all know it. They have the spice. They have the flavor that's kicking this football season up a notch. If you haven't tried the original hot sauce, what are you doing? Come on. What are you doing? Or if you haven't tried their new traditional barbecue sauce, run, don't walk, grab yourself a bottle today. Visit texaspeat.com for recipes and hot apparel. Plus take 20% off your entire order with promo code Saturday Down South. That is all one word, all caps, Saturday Down South. Win big with Texas Pete when you sauce like you mean it. All right, here's Matt. Not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Matt Hayes. Matt, have you cast your Heisman ballot yet? And yeah. um, I'm going to assume that it's just Hendon Hooker and nobody else. Uh, he's, I'll tell you what. How about Quinshawn Junkins, huh? Wow. I mean, what mm. a season that kid's having. True freshman. I think, I'm pretty sure he reclassified, didn't he? Like, I think he, I think he reclassified and became like an early enrollee guy. Like, he... Should have been this seed. It's something like that where he's a really, really young guy. He just turned 19 yesterday. Yeah. He literally turned 19 on on Saturday. So that that would yeah. that would still line up for him to be a true freshman. But he was for whatever reason though, he was a three-star guy. And I kind of find myself wondering how many of these guys who exploded in 2020, if they maybe just didn't get the love that they should have, because he got like a ton of volume too. It wasn't like he was just some barely used guy he wasn't what rocket sanders was in high school or something like that and yeah the picture that keeps resurfacing of lane just sitting there alabama state championship game just freezing rain he's like gotta watch my guy judkins you know what i love you know what i love about lane he's not afraid to run a guy 30 times man he wasn't supposed to get the ball that much he wasn't right but you know what Run the guys. I don't I don't understand the whole let's give this guy seven carries and this guy ten carries. Maybe we'll give that guy five carries. These guys need to get lathered up, man. Run them. I love Zach, it. Love Zach it. Evans is probably I mean, I would assume Zach Evans is going to the NFL after this year and he'll have a market. His skill set is 
translates really well. Right. So if you're, you don't necessarily have to worry about him transferring or anything like that. And he's just like, Judkins is that guy. I mean, it, it's incredible to watch what he's become and crazy to think about if he stays healthy, the things that he can do, even in just three years with the volume that he's going to get in that offense. So basically that's what your way of saying Judkins one, Hooker two on your no, eyes and ballot. No. You're not even filling off the no, It's Hooker one. I'm just saying, <laughs> I mean, it's Hooker. I don't know how it's not Hooker for anyone, but I, I will say this. It's, I mean, you watch Judkins and – that dude can play, man. I've never seen a guy that runs with, with the strength and power that he runs with, with speed and, here's the key, with the ability to get small. He finds little creases, man. Just, wow, he's a good player. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying he's going to be on my highs, but I'm just saying he's a really, really good player. That's that. Tennessee's defense and that last night, and Junkins last night, were really the two big things that caught my eye this week. Okay, so let's let's talk about, you know, the, the Tennessee part of this because I, I think that, We've and I talked about this in the open, but there are a lot of people who continue to say, "Well, Tennessee is this type of team that they're going to win all these shootouts all the time." And if you actually kind of look at it, it hasn't necessarily been the case because people have this Alabama game burned in their brain, they have the Florida game burned in their brain, and the Tennessee defense looks like it's really figuring things out right now. And I kind of look at that and think, if they're going to have a top ten run defense or even just a top 20 run defense. And they are going to keep everything in front of them the way that they did last night. That's a championship caliber team. And I don't know if that means SEC championship or national championship. Those things are kind of two of the same. But how quickly have you put them into that conversation? So here's how quickly, okay? So I'm writing for uh, First and Ten this week that drops Monday and Saturday down south that it can no longer be avoided now. They are they are now almost a mirror image of LSU in 2019. Oh, you're going the way, there. The way those three they have three legit receivers now that can beat you anywhere on the field. They have a white hot quarterback. They can run the ball and they can run the ball consistently, just like LSU could with Clyde Edwards. They have two two running backs that can do it. Okay, they've got a good tight end. Not only can he catch the ball, but he runs short yards and gets you a touchdown. All right, and here's the key defensively, they look almost exactly like LSU struggled the first seven, eight, nine games of the season on defense. They gave up like 600 yards against Ole Miss. Remember that? When John yeah, Rice game. ran for like 200 on them. So everybody thinks of that LSU defense and they think of the playoff run and the, and the way they played in the SEC championship game. They were not that good for at least seven or eight games of the season. They struggled. And I know they had NFL players. But the reality is they developed just like this Tennessee defense is developing now. This Tennessee defense now is getting after the quarterback. They're affecting the quarterback. They're getting sacks. They got three picks last night and four sacks. So this is not a defense that you're going to say, oh, I heard the guys on the broadcast last night. They have 130th pass defense in the nation. Okay, that's fine. Let's see where they are after this game against Georgia. Let's see where they are at the end of November. So to me, it's starting to get very scary because LSU kind of came out of nowhere a white hot quarterback, and now all of a sudden you're like, okay, Tennessee's starting to remind me of somebody, and they really do. It's it's hard to ignore that right now. Have you officially joined me in predicting that Tennessee's going to beat Georgia? Oh, I know they are. Yeah, that's that's. A, you know they are. I know they're beating Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. Now the question with me is, do they beat Alabama in the rematch? That's the question. Oh my god, they're beating Georgia. That's happening. There's no doubt about. It. I mean, I, I mean, you watched that Georgia team yesterday. You think that Georgia team is going to beat Tennessee? No, I, I've been I said in July, I said in August, I said in September. I, I think Tennessee is going to beat them. I still came away from what Georgia did in response when things got close, when things got close against Florida, and then the way that they kind of flipped Turned it into it up, gear. Yeah. They yeah. they did, and there that's not to be taken for granted because I think we remember while these are mostly 18 to 22 year old kids with the exception of 25 year old, now 25 year old Stetson Bennett, um, they have a tendency in those moments to kind of will. And I thought that was a pretty defining thing and seeing the way that Kirby was so like overjoyed during the final moments that game. And even afterwards, I thought that was, that was significant. So what do we make of Georgia then? Because I, I don't think we can assume that we should see the team that we saw week one against Oregon, maybe some different circumstances, the type of prep that went into that. And I still think though, that they're in that short list four teams now with Tennessee in it that can win a national championship. Where do you kind of see this playing out for them? So 
here's what I think about Georgia. Saturday was Shorter, Pearsall, and Henderson. And the quarterback was Anthony Richardson. Next week, it's going to be quarterback Hendon Hooker, wide receivers Hyatt, Tillman, and Brew McCoy. Are you kidding me? That's literally night and day is what that is. And that Tennessee offensive line, they're playing fantastic right now. So they're going to deal with that, with the pressure that Georgia can give. Look, Georgia's going to get their plays. They're going to have some nice plays on defense. They'll get a sack or they'll get some pressures. They'll affect the quarterback. There's no doubt about it. They are not going to be able to cover those three guys. And it's not just Georgia. No one in the country can cover those three guys. You can't cover all three of them. You can't bracket all three of them. Somebody's going to beat you. And Hooker is fantastic at finding the right guy that can beat you. So that's why I think Tennessee's going to win the game. I don't think Georgia can score with them. You watch that Georgia offense. Stetson still throws lollipops. He does. And that's that's a problem. Now they, you know, they've got they're very good at tight end. There's no doubt about that. Bowers and Washington are just their matchup nightmares everywhere. But if you can get to Bennett, you can stress him a little bit. Suddenly that offense changes and it changes a lot. So I guess my point is this, Connor. They're not going to be able to get away with the mistakes they made against Florida, against Tennessee. Sure. You make a mistake against Tennessee, it's going to be seven points. You make a mistake against Florida, you can still get a three and out. I think that is different. And, and I, I, I'm, I find myself feeling like, well, if Tennessee was going to have one of those years, isn't this kind of what it would look like? We'll see what the conversation is uh, this time next week. Bam LSU, everyone wants to know, all right, Brian Kelly, can he actually do this? How much does his past against Alabama matter to me? I think it's a little bit irrelevant, very different circumstances talking about a year one coach and the, the talent and all the th- different things that he has at LSU compared to what he had in Notre Dame. Uh, I'll right. instead ask you why he has always been able to adapt to wherever he's been because so many people seem to just kind of forget that and assume the worst with Brian Kelly, who has, established himself more so maybe more so this year than years past as a legitimate top five coach in the sport. And I don't really think there should be much debate. And I, it's, it's, it's amazing to me, Connor. I don't understand why your first thought of the guy is the worst. What And what's the worst that his team got its ass beat by Alabama in 2012 in the national club or they got, or they lost in the playoff twice, lost to Clemson. I, I mean, seriously, that's what you're pointing to Brian Kelly. You're not pointing the fact that he won national championships multiple at the NCAA lower divisions. You're not talking about the fact that he turned around Central Michigan when he got there, went to Cincinnati, had an unbeaten season when he got there at Cincinnati, went to Notre Dame, became the winningest coach at Notre Dame. What's not to like about this guy? Now, you may not like the way he yells on the sideline, his face gets all red, and he's not the guy that for you, but the dude can coach, man. You may like like his Southern accent or the way he's dancing with a recruit. Who cares, man? He's trying to get players. Players win the game. If you have any question about if players win games or not, watch the games yesterday. You know why Ole Miss won that game? Because Ole Miss had the best player in the field that day. That's why. You know why Georgia won that game yesterday? Because Georgia had the best players in the field. He's trying to get players. I I mean, honestly, Connor, I, I, I see him as a guy that everybody realizes he's a great coach, but everybody wants him to fail because he was at Notre Dame. Yes. Now he's away from Notre Dame. Now he's at LSU. And here we go. Let's see what happens. I'll tell you right now, if they somehow win this game and they're playing really well, Jaden Daniels playing really well. Boy, that's what do you say that about Brian Kelly? Because at that point, they control their destiny. We know that. They control their destiny in the West. They could go out, win the West, and get to the SEC championship game. And if you win that game, they're getting to the playoff with two yeah. losses. That's going to happen. Which is just wild to think about right. and how quickly things have changed. Of course. The the ultimate if beating Alabama, handing Alabama that second regular season loss. Good luck with that. Way easier said than done. Um, another guy that people just like to root against. And I think we've kind of been um, on the same page about this guy for, for a little while. But Bill O'Brien, Bama fans want him on the first plane out. They think it's all Bryce Young having Why? to improvise for this offense. People like rooting against guys that they feel like they they, they wouldn't want to have a beer with. Right. I, that is such a basic thing, but he, with the way that he comes across and in his face, there are certain people that when you just look at them, you think punching bag, Pete Golding, 
punching bag every single time you can't there are certain people and that that is just always going to hang over you know who like there are there are just certain people in this business who don't have a face like that shane beamer doesn't have a face like that marcus freeman doesn't have a face like that there are certain guys that you just look at and you're like oh i want to root for that guy sam Pittman doesn't have a face like that and those guys though always fall into this category and it seems like perception is very different than reality what is reality for bill o'brien what do you think his next step looks like so first, let me tell you what reality is like off the field, okay? Because I know Bill fairly well. People always ask me, you know, what's a guy like? Not a coach. Just like if people ask me, what's Connor like? So Nobody it, asks you that. The point is, <laughs> if I say, look, he's a guy on my day off I'd have a beer with, right? You're a guy on my day off I'd have a beer with. Guess Thank what? You. Bill Ryan on my day off I'd have a beer with. He's a great dude. A great dude. Now, on the field, where do these Alabama fans think that Bryce Young became this elite player? They think he just stepped on campus and, he, and his elite talent just took over, that no one coached him, no one put him in position to play at the elite level he did. Literally all, all Bryce Young has said since he got there is what Bill O'Brien has done for him, how he's helped him develop, how he's helped him become a better player. He loves Bill O'Brien. And the Alabama fans still are complaining about play calls and why can't they score points. They scored 40. How many points gets Tennessee? 47 49? Was it 49? 49. Yeah, 52. If you score 49 points in an SEC game, you probably should win, okay? So instead of blaming Bill O'Brien, you might want to blame, I don't know, your defensive coordinator who also, oh, by the way, your head coach, big defensive guy. He's a guy who's, you know, done a lot of defensive work in his career, if you know what I mean. You might want to start blaming him. You might want to start blaming your head coach for the, I don't know, 17 penalties against Tennessee, Okay. Because well, you blame point, the refs. You don't blame Saban for that. Right, you, you don't blame Saban, right. You yeah. blame the refs. Right. So, it, but it's it's the easiest guy. It's the easiest guy to hit. And and it's it's unfortunate. What What's O'Brien's future? Probably the NFL, I think. Yeah, he's I going think back. He probably goes back there. I think he probably gets a head coaching job back there in the NFL. If not, if not, I would love to see him in college football. Where would he go? Um, Georgia Tech would be a great spot for him. You know, he coached there prior as an assistant. He loved it there. Um yeah, I could see that. I, I could see George Tech. I would not want him to go to Auburn. I don't think Auburn's going to take him anyway, but I would hate to see him go to Auburn because it's just – I'd hate to see any good guy go to Auburn because it's just <laughs> such a – and wait, but, but let me just say this first, okay? Honestly, I love the Auburn people. Auburn is a great place. Everything about that place is fantastic. The people there are awesome, salt-of-the-earth people. It's just those two or three or four people – that think they're God because they have money. And, and that's the worst thing possible about that place because everything else about Auburn is literally perfect. Honestly, Connor, it's I love it. I love Auburn. It's just those two, three terrible people that think, you know what? I got a billion dollars. I can do whatever I want. And there you go. I'm laughing because you said you don't want to see good people go to Auburn. That's why you projected Urban to go to Auburn the last time we talked. Yes. It's probably the perfect fit. The turd for the for the for the three turds that try to run the place. That they're a perfect fit, man. Seriously. All right, let's let's. I, I want to get you out of here with three three predictions. So playoff, how you think it will play out? Actually, you know what? You can just tell me how you think it will. How you would have it right now if you're putting your top four? Because I think it will play out. And I'm not saying this is what I would do. I'm saying this is how I think it'll play out. I think right. they will. The selection committee will put Ohio State at one. I think they'll put Tennessee at two. Georgia at three, Michigan at four. I know you would have Tennessee at one, but do you think the selection committee would put it? Oh, mighty Ohio State at one. It's unreal. Like, what have they done? They'll, they'll point to the Penn State. Here's, here's what's going to happen. Look, they're going to point to Jim Knowles. They're going to point to Jim Knowles. You can see, you can close your eyes and see that on Tuesday. They they improved so much defensively. We're giving them that love. It's like, what, Tennessee didn't improve? <laughs> Who cares about yeah. – so listen, this is real quick about Ohio State. They are literally the poster child for what's wrong with the college football playoff selection committee. It's all about the eye test with Ohio State. Every single year, it's about the eye test with Ohio State. That's how they got in with six wins in the COVID year. Remember that? Yeah. When the Big Ten changed the rules and all of a sudden, hey, let's get Ohio State the Big Ten championship game. Rob, my alma mater. Yep, I remember. It's, I mean, it's it's amazing. They are the poster child for what's wrong with that selection committee. And if they don't put – Tennessee's beaten five ranked teams. You can say whatever you want about they're not ranked anymore. Okay, fine. They were ranked at the time of the game, which made it a pretty darn big game. All right? Ohio State's beaten two. And if you look at that Ohio State schedule compared to the Tennessee schedule, not even close. If you look at the production on the field, Ohio State versus Tennessee, seriously? 
So I, I don't know. I, I wrote the column yesterday, last night, late last night. If you if, if you're going to try and convince me that anyone other than Tennessee should be number one, you're out of your mind. So what do I think it's going to be? Ohio State, Tennessee, Georgia, <laughs> and then here's another here's another classic one. Clemson will get in over TCU. TCU is also beating four ranked teams. Yeah. Who has Clemson beaten? Don't start throwing Wake Forest at me, okay? Don't even give me that. Seriously, don't give me Syracuse. Because if you give me Syracuse, I'm going to say, how about that phantom personal foul call that got you that first down late in the game that basically gave you that game? Don't even start telling me Syracuse, okay? Wake, I might be all right with. Syracuse? Come on. I mean, come on. What do I think it should be? Tennessee, TCU, Georgia, Ohio State. I want to put like TCU State, Michigan. I don't like. I, I like. I, you know what? I'm going to put Michigan there because I think Michigan's had better wins than Ohio State. And I think. Oh, by the way, Michigan goes into Columbus and wins that. I think. Ooh. Gonna- so you would put Ohio State outside of your top four? Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, what's the what's the reason to put them in the top four? I guess that's the question. The the Penn State because the offense looks good. Yeah, I mean the their Eagles so- offense looks good too. We're going to put them in the top four. I think Ohio State's defense is has actually become really good. I am not saying that I would. I don't think they deserve a top two spot. Did you see? The, did you did you see what I wrote about the the ranks of the offenses they played this year? Oh, they're it's, they're, it's they're bad. They're so, really bad. Yeah, but they're atrocious, is what they are. Penn State, very average, had thirty points on them. Very average offense. I, I, I'm not buying Ohio State until November 26th. If they win that game, then I'll buy Ohio State. I'm still buying Ohio State. But again, the resume is what it is. And I think when when I listen to these people talk about it, and then I have to hear David Pollock say one more time, well, we know who's better. We know who the better teams are. Go to Vegas. Go to Vegas. Become a billionaire because you know who the better teams are. You know who's going to win every single game. That's fine. When I, whenever anyone says everybody knows, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody right. knows. Um, okay. Different prediction. Who is Jimbo Fisher's play caller next year? Mm, good question. That's a really good question. Um, I would go get somebody like Jason Cannell from Toledo, the head coach of Toledo, who's a, who has scoring points every single year. Yep. Um, he probably makes four hundred thousand at Toledo. You pay him one point five million to say, "Come be my OC and quarterbacks coach," something like that. He's got to be different. It's got to be out of the box. He's got to. He's got to not only change on the field. He's got to change so five star recruit quarterbacks and, and wide receivers say, "Ooh, yeah, okay, I want to go play there." Here's an interesting one. Joe Brady's the quarterback's coach for the Bills right now. Joe Brady couldn't have fallen off that quickly. I, if he, if I, and I understand he's like, he's more of an NFL guy, does want to recruit, whatever. Joe Brady, if we had told any human being two years ago, that guy is just going to be sitting there and you can give him two million bucks and he can come run your offense, they would have been like, oh my God, sign me up. Does that he not loves seem- the NFL though, man? He loves the NFL. That's the problem. I don't know that he three million. <laughs> Then okay. might, he might come back. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. He, he doesn't like to recruit, and he loves the NFL. I know that. Fair, fair. Let's do uh, an updated prediction on on Mullen. We've talked about this a little bit off air as well. Where do you think he ends up at next year? He was great on caller, by the way, on Thursday night with Matt Barry. He was really good. Uh, I'm going to say West Virginia. Oh, interesting. Nice spot for him. A lot like Starkville. He knows how to get guys there. You know, he's not going to get the elite four or five star guys, but he'll get the guys that people miss on, and that you can develop. And yeah. They'll win there. Getting the Big 12 or offenses, everything, and away you go. That's a good fit. I like that. Uh, last one. Um, okay, Auburn. Not not Urban. Can't You can't give me Urban again. It doesn't work. Why? Who's the guy? I mean, that's who they're going to hire. No, one's no it's this. not. No, it's not. What do we need to bet on this right now, Matt, that they're not going to hire Urban? There's just no way. Who's the guy? Wow. Um, who's the guy? If it's not Urban, I mean <laughs> – I, I don't know, honestly. I, I mean, I don't I don't know who would take that job. Lane is not taking that job. I don't know why all the Auburn people think Lane's going to take that job. He's not. Lane might take the Texas A&M job if Jimbo decides let's get out of here and Jimmy Sexton gets a you know an eighty or seventy million dollar buyout for him. Maybe if they come to an agreement on seventy million or something. But Lane is not taking that Auburn job. He's got a better gig at Ole Miss. Um, I don't know, man. Who's taking that? Gundy, maybe. Because he's tired at Oklahoma State, and they just lost forty nine nothing. Maybe with a backup quarterback. How does that happen? Goodness gracious! I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Actually, I, I'm so I'm so hyper focused on Herb. I can't imagine. I don't know. I mean, it's going to have to be somebody who is either 
has been out of coaching or who's desperate because nobody wants to walk into that situation. Even, even Matt rule that, that to me, I'm kind of like, no ah. way he's not taking that job. No chance, no chance, yeah. no chance. And Matt rule took the Baylor job after that nightmare. That tells you how bad Auburn is. There's no way he's going to Auburn. No way. Yeah. I, uh, I, I've come to expect that we're just going to be wrong about all, all things Auburn coaching hires. That's probably that's what the last 20 years have told us. So why are we going to be right now? And even the I mean, Dion probably. thing, you're kind of They'll like, go get ah. PJ Fleck, who like no one would ever think would go and he'll be the next Auburn coach or something, you know, it'll That'd be, be something crazy like that. Oh gosh. I'd be here for that. The content. I don't think we can have PJ Fleck and Shane Beamer in the same conference. It'd be the Spider-Man yeah. meme a little bit. No, I, South Carolina fans are going to get mad for me saying that. I've been saying that the last couple of weeks that he's got a little bit of PJ Fleck in him, just the, with the way that he comes off and the way that people kind of interpret, you know, just his overall vibe. I don't think Shane Beamer is PJ Fleck. I'm not saying that, but that would be a, an interesting fit. Cause I think he went to Minnesota to in, instead of going to the sec. Cause I think he had, By opportunities. Way, how about that win for Eli? Huh? Good for Eli going in there, getting that win. Big, needed big, that. big win. He yeah, needed that badly. I, I think even if they go five and seven, I think he's I think he's fine. But again, he'll he'll have to get a play caller. He's gonna get somebody new to run that offense, kind of a similar type thing that we talked about on a very much on a much smaller scale than than AM, of course. And he'll have to bring in somebody new and, and overhaul that offense because that just is not there. And they're kind of wasting Blake Baker's really, really good defense that they have this year. Too bad. All right, Matt. This has been right, great. Bro. As yep. always, appreciate it, man. We'll talk soon. Yep. My pleasure. See you, man. One last thing, rest in peace to a legend, Vince Dooley. I wasn't fortunate enough to have spent a lot of time with him and his coaching career ended before I was born. So I didn't really grow up with him in the same way that I'm sure many Georgia fans listening to this did. But obviously him being around the program as long as he's been, um, I did want to share the only little story that I have about my my actual interaction with him, which was about four and a half years ago um, for OG listeners of this podcast. So remember we did a, a series on SDS called goat week and I wrote something about Herschel and how he was the greatest running back I never saw. So obviously want to talk to Dooley and I was able to get his contact information from one of Herschel's old teammates. And I called Dooley one day, just out of the blue and to my surprise, he answered and <laughs> Um, I, I don't know how many people have experienced this before, but when somebody way more famous than you are is that accessible, you're kind of surprised. You kind of just assume, okay, they're not going to answer their phone. So I explain what exactly I'm doing. And he tells me I'm about to go into a meeting. I'll call you back tomorrow. So I'm like, all right, sweet. So the next day he calls me back while I'm in the bathroom, <laughs> of course. And I call him back, no answer. And I wait a day, I shoot him a text and basically reintroduce myself Tell him, call me back whenever. And sure enough, he does. So we talk about Herschel for probably a half hour. And this was, again, one of those things where I'm like, all right, we're going to play phone tag. Probably not going to call me back. Probably not going to happen. So in this conversation in which, you know, he was as nice as can be, I, I just found the little things that, that he told me about Herschel to be amazing. They, they like how Georgia had to start staying in a team hotel the night before games at home because of the circus that would follow. Dooley basically decided after Herschel's freshman year that two patrolmen needed to be following him kind of everywhere he went because it got that crazy. But my favorite story that he told me was, and some have probably heard this story, of course, or at least a variation of it, uh, was ironically enough, Dooley waiting on a certain phone call. Um, Easter Sunday, 1980, Vince's wife, Barbara, she had plans to take the family to Boston and a day before they're supposed to leave. So they're, they're supposed to leave on Sunday and this happens on Saturday. Um, Dooley tells his wife, uh, Barbara, I'm not going. And she goes, what do you mean you're not going? And he says, well, Herschel hasn't signed. Think about that. Um, a player of Herschel's caliber still had not signed yet. Easter Sunday, which today is when most true freshmen are already enrolled and they're playing in a spring game or something like that. So Barbara tells Vince, to hell with Herschel. Who does he think he is? <laughs> And Vince responds, I don't know who he thinks he is, but I'm not going. So the whole family minus Vince goes up to Boston and Sunday morning, don't you know it? Herschel calls Vince, tells him that he's coming to Georgia. The rest is history. Had Vince told Barbara, oh, you know what? You're right. Let's let's go to Boston. This can wait. Whatever. You know, he's a small school kid. <laughs> no big deal. Uh, then, I mean, those would have been not 1980 jokes. They probably would have been 1942 jokes 
because Herschel, of course, has told the story about how he flipped a coin. Well, first between playing college football and going into the military. And then once he decided he was playing college football, he was deciding between Clemson and Georgia. So you had better believe that Herschel would have been like, well, Coach Dooley didn't answer his phone. So I guess that means God's telling me to go to Clemson. And Dooley knew that. And he picked up on it in Georgia. I was able to have one of its, I mean, not one of its, its best star ever in program history as a result of, of that phone call. Just an absolute legend Vince Dooley was. And it's incredible to see the the outpouring of love that he was able to get over this football weekend. And Kirby Smart talking about, you know, we did this for Vince. He was on our minds. Just somebody that will be missed. Uh, a legend of the game that I'm sure so many people listening to this have had great experiences with. One last, last thing. I can't wait for next Saturday. I can't wait. Basically, I have division title games with Tennessee, Georgia, and Bama LSU. I mean, Hugh Freeze is given another opportunity interview for the Auburn job. I mean, he's got another SEC game, um, of, of course, against Arkansas. Even Florida A&M is really interesting. So it's going to be an excellent Saturday. We've got the playoff show to overreact to on Tuesday as well. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Join the Facebook group here named Red On Air. We're figuring out or Bolton Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.